This is Geek Gab with your host, Nordall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for April 4th, 2020. Yeah, 2020. I was counting just to make sure I hadn't lost track somewhere. It's been 20 years since the Y2K bug. Can you believe that? I mean, the math works out. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where you're going with this. I'm just kind of, you know, barreled over. It's been like, I don't want to bring the show down. It's kind of a depressing time anyway. Um, But it's been like 19 years since... uh, 9-11. 9-11. Oh, yeah. 19 years. I'm saying you're old. I'm saying I'm old. I'm saying everybody listening to this show is old. You're all old. Practically dead. That's what I'm saying. That's what the introduction's about. One foot in the grave. That's our new motto. Yes. Yes. Come to the show, learn how to market your books, and also your debt. So, can we do <laughs> I can't top that. I can't. <laughs> Welcome to the Grim Reaper episode of Geek Gab. I was I was just explaining to our guest. Welcome to the show, Jim. Um, I was just explaining to our guest that Geek Gab is is all fun, no work. This is supposed to be a, a positive, uplifting experience. <laughs> Who knows? The afterlife could be a lot of fun. I'm just hoping that he's not suggesting that my my book is dead on arrival. Oh, no. (laughs) I never got that memo. We're supposed to be fun? I I believe you set the rule uh, of of all fun, no work. No politics. Oh, no politics. Yeah, that's safe. Let's not talk about that. Um, so do you have any, any good stories from this week? Me? I'm I'm bereft of good stories. I've been taking it easy at home, staying away from work, uh, enjoying the Pacific Northwest's weather on and off again, and uh, and trying to keep sane. I finally got to start playing Resident Evil 3 last night, the remake. A week after they took your money. A week after they took my money. How is it? Um, it's it's kind of... I don't know what Resident Evil, the original one, was like, so I can't really compare. So I don't know if this is a, an honest remake or if they just like lazily remade stuff, but some of it is really like deja vu. Like, I ended up back in the police station where I spent all of Resident Evil 2 remake. Mm. Is that from the first game? Is that from the original Resident Evil 3? It sure is. Okay. The uh, the story of Resident Evil 3 is, remember in, in the first Resident Evil, there are two characters, Chris and Jill. Yeah. And Resident Evil 3 is the story of what Jill was up to during the events of Resident Evil 2. Gotcha. Or shortly, or immediately before the events of Resident Evil 2, or rather. I, 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 like, end up, you know, seeing a cop dead who was, whose corpse I saw, 
in Resident Evil 2, and I'm blowing a hole in the wall that was blown up in Resident Evil 2, and, you know, stuff like that. So I'm getting this, like, weird deja vu vibe. It's like, hey, that's where that came from, I guess. <laughs> that's that's clever, right? You know, you might as well, if you're going to remake Resident Evil 2, just go ahead and reuse those assets for the game that takes place in the same... That may be why they... <laughs> that may be how they originally made Resident Evil 3. They said, hey, let's just reuse some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, and I'm, not, I'm not saying the whole game is like that. Obviously, they had all the streets uh, of the Resident Evil that you had to wander about for the first part. This is just the Carlos part. Um, so, yeah, but I've been enjoying it. Um, it. It wasn't... It hasn't been as good as the Resident Evil 2, though. And I think the problem is, is that you don't have as many choices that have impacted you later as you're going on. Like in Resident Evil 2, you have all these windows that are open that zombies come crawling out of. But if you search and find these boards, you can pick, a, pick them up, hammer them over those open windows, and you save yourself a lot of trouble later. They don't have any of those action consequences or many of them and so it's kind of uh it's not as like strategic there's not as many choices as you can make to make things easier or harder for, on yourself so it's been kind of kind of a letdown that way i was expecting to have more like oh figure out this problem i can do this and then that'll save me some trouble yesterday then this fence won't come down and i won't have to deal with these six zombies so I'm um, a little disappointing that way. I'm not done yet, though, so maybe I'll talk about the whole game when I'm finished in the show. Well, am I kidding? Of course I will. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Uh, plus, I get to shoot zombies. And uh, anybody who's listened to the show for any length of time knows that's my jam, right? Yeah, this is that is the one thing that, if you can be count, counted on for is shooting zombies. Um, have you ever played a game called Infestation or no. also known as the New Z? It's a horrible MMO, but it's all about shooting zombies. And I tell you what, uh, my, my father can spend hours and hours just running around and shooting up zombies and picking up ammunition and shooting more zombies with it. It's a, it's a hoot. Well, there you go, folks. <laughs> I can't recommend it. It's a terrible game. <laughs> but if you like shooting zombies, it it just it scratches that itch. All right. So I want to point out just for just for the sake of getting this on the record that uh, I believe that our guest's book has absolutely almost nothing to do with shooting zombies. Shooting them, no, it, it, it doesn't. There is, um, and maybe this is a segue into what it is rather than what it isn't. It, there, are, there are five stories in there, and one of the stories, I don't call them zombies because zombies are kind of, you know, overdone. They are revenants, but they're essentially zombies. But nobody shoots them. They stab them. Let's see. There you go. Stabbing and, and burning and decapitating, I hope. Um stabbing, um, tearing off of limbs, that sort of thing. Right. 
that's one of the best things about zombies is that they have limbs that just freely pop off and you can <laughs> and they don't stop they just keep coming after you kind of bleeding angrily and gnashing their teeth while you beat them with their own arms yeah i'm a big fan of zombies <laughs> <clears throat> or bleeding or or something um so i'm going to bring up your kickstarter page for everybody hanging out yeah. on youtube um this is Mongoose and Meerkat Volume 1. You said five stories, and only one of them is zombies. Only one of them is zombies, yeah. There are five stories that have all been published in Kirsova Magazine already. Um, they're the first, first five of the series. There is also a novelette which has not been published at all. So if you happen to have read all the Kirsova stories, this is something that is extra in the book itself. Um, Fantasy adventure and adventuring duo, um, Mangos and Cat. Uh, they call themselves the Mongoose and the Mercat. And at this point in the series, they're just kind of out there having adventures, either planned or unplanned, and, and seeing where it takes them. And they're new to the game, so sometimes they're successful and sometimes maybe not so much. That sounds great. Now, I, I have a, I have a, uh, a couple of confessions to make for full disclosure, is that I, I backed this, and I've backed a lot of Kursova stuff, but I basically haven't read any of it. Well, here's your opportunity. Hopefully, uh, you'll get a chance to, and when you do, you'll enjoy it. Um, for those who have not read any of the Mongoose and Maricat stories, it's a great opportunity to start at the beginning and, and bring yourself up to date. Um, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't go back and buy the back issues of Kirsova because you ab absolutely should do that too, but um, you won't be getting the novel at Deathwater included in those back issues. These stories are intended to each stand alone. So if you were to pick it up and you were to, to flip to the third story in the series, it wouldn't really matter that you hadn't read the first two. Um, same, there is a, a brand new one in the spring issue of Kursova that came out in March, um, Golden Pearl. And you can read that one without having read the first five and, and hopefully you'll enjoy it as well. Uh, the thing about these that makes it a little different from just uh, stories like Fofford and the Grey Mauser where you can, you know, they, they just happen and there's, there's no goal and there's no drive behind the whole stories is by the end of it, they, you'll see that um, each story is a story and the collection of all the stories is also another story. Um, so the hope is that once you get into these, you'll want to continue reading the stories. And when you get to the end, you'll see something that you hadn't seen along the way and maybe even want to go back and, and reread them from a new point of view. Well, that sounds interesting. Sort of like a, in the sense of like a, book series or a TV series where the season has a, an overall arc or is it something um, deeper, more meaningful than that? Um, I would say maybe a little deeper, more meaningful than that. I don't want to give away too many spoilers because obviously uh -huh. this, so the, the, the entire series is written from the point of view of Mangos, who is um, young, he's brash, he's impulsive, he sees what's in front of him, um, but he doesn't really look deeply beyond that. So part of the 
overall arc is as he gets more experienced and, and he learns things, he starts to learn things that they've been there all along, but as he sees them, because you're in his point of view, as he sees them, um, now the reader becomes more aware of them as well. Um, so, you know, the, the one that I don't mind giving away, at the very beginning, Mangos can't read. I mean, he's he's kind of this adventuring farm boy who just left home and and he has some skills, but he lacks other skills. And he runs into Cat, who has more skills and different skills. And, and in the first um, first story, Battlefield of Karis, they end up in the archives and, and she actually steals a good portion of them so they can find out what they need. And, and he's a little bit envious that she can find out information by reading. So he says that he wants to be able to read. And it's never shown, you know, I mean, it's really boring to write about somebody sitting down and parsing out the alphabet to learn to read. So it happens between the stories, but as the stories progress, you will see how he is uh, maturing and growing so that um, in one of the stories that's still upcoming, suddenly he can read rudimentary wording that's on the side of some crates and then later on he's actually stealing his own stealing some books so that he can read um so you don't need to have read the previous issues but if you do read them then you can see the progression in that aspect as well as other aspects which i won't use as examples because i don't want to spoil more important storylines oh cool sort of a uh an added bonus for anybody who's who's kept up with the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and 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 this is kind of like a continuity warning because it, you could say, hey, he can't read, um, but he can read. It is part and process of his evolution as a character, and although these things happen chronologically, they aren't end to end. So it's not like you stop one story and the next one starts 20 minutes after that one ended. There's time in between where things happen. They move geographically, they buy things. Mangos learns to read, stuff like that. Cool. And and I have to ask, how much of that is is organic and how much of that was planned out by you? It sounds like something that you might've planned out. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So I originally, um, when I wanted, decided I wanted to write something like this, I, I was reading, second time I've mentioned Foffer and the Grey Mauser, which is um, fantastic stuff. I really enjoy it, um, but it's a little dated in some ways, and there are some strengths to it and some weaknesses to it. And I'm like, you know, I, I think it would be kind of cool if somebody were to try and do something like this and make it a little more relevant to you know, the 2000s. And let's do that because in, in some ways we often have um, his, uh, heroes who have become all superheroes. You don't have the the people who are just out there doing things. And Fafra and the Grey Mauser, whereas they're the finest swordsmen in their world or any other, um, still have a feeling that um, they're not, you know, Captain America or something like that. And I, I kind of wanted to bring something like that out. I wanted a world where um, it was a pretty rough world and, and people did what they pleased without really stopping to think about the implications of it. And so I, I wrote um, The Valley of Terzal, which was actually the third story when I finally put them chronologically. And then I started writing another one, which is later on in the chronology. And then I started thinking, you know, 
one of the things that I don't like about some of these is that they are, they're cool stories, but they don't go anywhere. I think I can take these and go somewhere with them. And from that point, I started to try and figure out who wanted what, where they were going, how they were getting there, how it would be viewed. Um, and then it was, it was planned out. Um, so uh, yeah, it started out without thinking that I was going to write as many stories as I did and that they were all going to be interconnected and, and you could read them backwards and forwards. Um, but it sort of turned into that. <laughs> but uh, if you read them backwards, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be too awkward, right? No. Okay. So, so the, the qualification on that is once you get far enough into the stories and everybody's motivations are out on the table, then it helps to have read by the time. So there are, there are 18 stories by the time you hit 15, pretty much everybody's, everybody knows what's going on and 16, 17 and 18 are definitely separate stories, but it helps to have known. I mean, you, you could read 16 and it would be a good story, but you would say, how did they get here? Mm. And, and once you'd be like, okay, this was a great episode, but how did they get here and where are they going from here? And then when you read the last one, you, it, it brings everything and resolves all the storylines. And you probably, I mean, you definitely would want to have read 16, 17, and 18, but hopefully by that point, you'd be saying, you know what, I really want to go back to number one. And if I haven't read number one, I want to start there. If I have read number one, I kind of want to go back and, and see, because there's a lot of stuff that's interwoven into these stories that now would make more sense. When you read them, it's, you know, for example, it's, it's just natural dialogue. But if you know what's going on at the end, you can go back and you can maybe read some subtext into that dialogue that you wouldn't have the first time through. I'm stunned. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I was waiting to jump in, but I thought, I'm kind of interested in seeing how long that goes on. <laughs> Uh, actually, that that sounds really great. Uh, now now is a fine time to jump in, DW. But uh, that sounds like you've given a lot of thought to the readability and rereadability of it, which is, um, I guess, people who like books like to reread them. But I'm the type of person who watches most films once, watch you know, reads a book once, that sort of thing. Uh, there's only a few that I've read more than once and and fans of the show know that i'm not much of a reader it's, it's not my favorite pastime but uh was that deliberate the rereadability deliberate was it simply a you, you, sorry you Dito, don't you can't shoot jump in. zombies you don't read what do you do for fun? <laughs> people people keep asking me that and i don't really have a good answer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in answer to your question yes it, it is deliberate i am I'm a, I'm a readaholic. You know, we must probably balance each other out in that regard because I, I like to read a lot, but I also realize that I'm the sort of person that when I pick up a new book, I tend everything else stops. Um, so if I want to be able to continue my life in the near term, I need to pick up a book that I've already read so that I can put it down because I already know what's going to happen. 
Um, so I do have personal experience in rereading a fair number of my favorite books. Um, there's also, um, her name is Megan Whalen Turner. She wrote a book called The Thief. And it is a fantastic job of writing a story that feels completely organic. Because a lot of times when people are putting into meanings, sometimes you get the feeling that you don't know what's going on, that the author is withholding information or something like that. And, and Turner does a great job of, of you don't feel that at all. And then at the end, there's a reveal that you go back and, and it just makes everything else, it illuminates it in, in a different way. And uh, it's really cool. And I thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun to try something like that, which means I need to be able to write this in a way that when you go back and reread it, if you want to, you can pick up on some of these things. You can see the keywords, you can see the dialogue, you can, you can see the actions that felt like they were discreet, but when you put them in a larger context, you realize that it's part of a plan. Um, and I think I'm drifting too close to spoilers, so we'll try and back off that a little bit. Oh, <laughs> um, but yeah, that was once once I decided that I wanted to connect the stories, that sort of thing was intentional. Cool. Dark Dark Philly's got your answer, by the way, DW. That's what I do. I talk to uh, people about reading. About reading. Okay. And, <laughs> I, I do that. I do that in my spare time too. Sometimes I call people up and say, "Hey, did you read? Did you read that new book? Did you read that new Kursova story? Yep. What, what's it like?" <laughs> <laughs> well, she has a vested interest in this too because she's been doing some incredible illustrations uh, for the interior of the story. Um, it, it's been really cool to to watch. Um, I see you're scrolling down there. Um, I don't see any on the Kickstarter page. There, there is some. If you go to um, which page are you on there? If if you go to the um, updates, I know there's one there, but there's there are some on the uh, campaign page. Mm -hmm. If you if you go to there, you'll be able to. I'll try and find some. Yeah, so she's she's done a, a great job just um, taking the characters and interpreting them in her own way, and um, it's it's been awesome seeing what she's come up with. And she drew um, some character sketches that were then passed over to the cover artist um, Anton Oxenuk, who did the cover for um, the Golden Pearl, the March issue of Kursova, which is a Mongoose and Maricat story, as well as um, Pursuit Without Asking, the cover of the book. So there, yep, there's a Mangos and Cat. Um, I think that one's from sort of sort of the Mongoose. Yeah, this is this is the interior artwork, and every everybody listening live, you're just gonna have to check out the Kickstarter page. It's got all these great. Uh, pieces by Dark Philly and and the beautiful cover, of course. Um, I missed the name of the artist, the cover artist. Uh, Anton Oxenuk. And also, if you're looking at this and appreciating it as much as I am, it is one of the um, Kickstarter um, uh, levels, I guess you call them. I'm not experienced at doing Kickstarter, but you can buy some of the original artwork um, that she that she drew for the book. It's a little bit further down. I think uh, I'm pretty, I mean, there's still some left. I mean, obviously it's of, of limited availability, but um, 
Yeah, that's that's pretty. Oh cool. yeah, oh yeah. There, there's a level two fifty. You get uh, all the previous backer things and original artwork. Well, that's cool artwork. It is. It is. Jackson Anderson said, "Made me smile." Oh, about the about the cover. Yeah, he likes the symbolism of of uh, the cover of a guy named Mongoose attacking a snake. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, look, we, this is a this is a fantasy book. There's no need for subtlety at all. Let's just <laughs> let's just do it. Well, it's one of the things that that people you know say. Where do you get some of the ideas? And that particular one, the the snake, um, actually came from the Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. Um, one of the things is uh, Mowgli falls into an ancient treasure storage and there's this little python who's turned white with age and it's, it's blind and his venom is dried up and, and Mowgli basically laughs at him, um, saying that you, you've gone past the ability to actually guard this treasure you're supposed to treasure, or, or guard this treasure you're supposed to guard. And um, that made me think about it. And I'm like, hmm, what if this old snake isn't? you know, toothless, and you actually have a fight on your hands to get the treasure that he's guarding. So yeah, go large, make the snake uh, a little bit bigger than a small python. All right, I gotta, I gotta ask, because the answer, the answer to Daddy Warpig's question is tabletop gaming is my jam. So when are we gonna get to play the mongoose and meerkat role-playing game <laughs> that is um it, it's part of the um part of the kickstarter um included in the hardcover version and, and the digital version i think um so this this is part of the stuff that um that alex at Kersova has been taking care of and so he knows it better than i do so i'm not exactly sure everything that it's in but you can get character sheets for mangoes and cat and they're pretty much uh, geared towards where they are now in the series. So they're you know, pretty decent characters, but just starting out. And if we make the stretch goal, um, so we've already made the 2000 beginners goal. If you make the stretch goal, uh, he's making up some, um, uh, what does he call them? They're, they're not full blown modules, but they're, they're things that you can insert uh, settings into your world to play Mongoose and Maricat settings or obviously the characters, things like that. I'm not sure. He told me that he was going through the stories and finding things that were good to uh, turn that into. I'm not sure which ones he has done. I assume Brandy and Die with the rope bridges and the, the valley with a mile long drop would be one of them, but I have no idea. <laughs> That's a fantastic idea. I didn't even notice that when I went over the Kickstarter earlier. Um, it's it is it's it's perfect. Uh, a pair of colorful characters, fantasy, uh, adventure. Just you just want to adapt that to your favorite game. It sounds awesome. And so yeah, you know, this would be my plug to say if you haven't bought in yet, help us get to that three thousand dollar mark, and uh, and that'll come true. Oh, that's awesome. DW, you wanted to jump in. Well, I was just wondering about. Um about the background world the stories take place in. Was that something that you developed uh, all at once before you started writing stories? Or was that something that kind of grew over time? 
So that kind of grew over time. Um, my original thought was was not 18 stories. It was probably I was just going to write a few stories um, and, and see what I had at that point. So what I wanted to do was just have something that was background for the adventures, um, something that gave it some heft, some believability, something that actually felt like even though, yes, we have a setting in the Valley of Terrazal, Terrazal has a place within a larger world. Part of the problem with doing that in the short story, though, is you don't want to spend so much time on world building that you interfere with the story. I mean, you only have like 5,000 words to get the story out. Um, so I tried to have hints of things. So like in the first one, Battlefield of Karis, they start somewhere else and then you have to travel to where the battlefield is and you can stop at the archives and having an archives implies that there's, you know, something to have in an archives. Um, and then as I expanded the, the storyline, it expanded the world as well. And one of the things that I really wanted to do as I, as I made this world was have a diversity of settings and tones to it, so you have stories that take place underground. The one that comes out um, in the winter issue of Kursova is called The mine, uh, Hunt of the Mine Worm, and it takes place in deep mines. You have um, The Golden Pearl, which is on Tropical Island. Um, you have Brandy and Die, which is up in the mountains with some unbelievable, geologically improbable, shall we say, um, formations going on. You have some urban settings, you have some rural settings, you have things that take place in the heat of the summertime, you have things that take place in the cold of wintertime. Um, you have stories that have a hint of mystery to them, um, like the burning fish does. You have stories that have a hint of steampunk, things that come out later. You have things like the Sword of the Mongoose, which has a very light horror to it. I wanted to kind of spread out and bring in a lot of different aspects that you would find in a world without cramming them all down the reader's throat in one story. Don't mind me just talking at the mute button. <laughs> <laughs> a number one service today, folks. <laughs> We have a number one long history of technical difficulties. Sometimes it's user created. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know that that's technically a technical difficulty. <laughs> uh, depends on how technical the brain is. No, but uh, um, when you were looking at the world background, was there a specific, even though you're growing it piecemeal, um, is there a specific like cultural background you're looking at or time period or uh, were you just like loosely inspired by the favorite and gray mouser background or how did that work? Um, yes. To all of that sort of. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there's a little bit. So it, it's kind of funny because as, as I mentioned, I, I did sort of start off as the, the Fafford and the gray mouser. This is, this is the, the touch point for it. Um, and I really kind of thought that I would spend more time, the the equivalent to Lankmar, if if you wanted to consider there actually being one in my world, is Alamar. And 
we're seven stories in, five in the book and two in the magazine still, and they haven't even gotten there. So I, I can't really say that that's what the world is about. Um, Mangos is all about fame, fortune, pleasurable company, being a big fish in a big pond, and that means he needs to make it in Alomar. Um, so we will get to the point where they reach Alomar. They've sort of made a name for themselves. They get to Alomar and find out that that means for exactly nothing. Uh, nobody cares. So they kind of need to remake their fame and fortune in this new stage. Um, I also found that I actually got away a little bit. Um, Foffer and the Grey Mauser at times are kind of jerks. Um, there's really, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's an immoral world, but it's certainly an amoral world. And that didn't really work well for me. There's a lot of people doing bad things in my world um, and it works for them, but they're still kind of the bad guys. And, and hopefully people will identify with Mangos and Cat, even though they have some rough edges, even though they go into the archives and steal half of them and that's not cool. Um, they're still basically good people. So it's not really taking um, Nuon and transplanting it into my own world. It's Nuon was something that I looked at and then I made my own world being aware that that was out there. That's sort of, that's not only a contrast with the amoral world that you described, but the sort of anti-hero theme that's run through Western pop culture for the past, what, 30 years, 25, 30 years. Uh, it's, it's nice to have genuinely good people that aren't, you know, good by happenstance or heroes by happenstance. And, and that that is also part of the character arc. I, I keep coming back to Mangos because we know more about him. He is the point of view character. So obviously we know more about him. Um, he's, and, and, and if you've read Battlefield, or I'm sorry, if you've read Valley of Terrors, all the opening sequence, so I bookend with these snakes, um, little literary sort of thing to do. Um, and in the opening scene, Mangos is waiting around for the person that they've hired and he's bored and there's a snake there and he's basically torturing the snake. He's batting at it with a sword. And in the end, he tortures the snake so much that it goes after him and he ends up having to kill it because, because he provoked it. And, you know, that's not a cool thing. It, it's, it's something that you wouldn't expect from a truly good hero. Um, and I did that sort of thing because I wanted to leave him room to grow. He's not starting out as the finished product. Um, so he can, you can look at some of these things that they do and they say, this is not what a true hero would do, but they are characters who have an arc who become something different than what they started out as. Cool. That's, that's sort of, Teddy Warpig has a whole rant about character arcs. But it sounds like as long as as long as long as it makes sense for the character, as long as as long as, long as the what's the word verisimilitude, as, as long as you can understand how the character grows, that that can be really good. It 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 provides it adds value, I should say, to the 
to understanding the story and, and gives people who read all the stories something to look forward to. Well, hopefully I make it work. I mean, that's up for the readers to decide if, if they think I pulled it off, but that was what I was trying to do. My rant about character arcs <clears throat> can be boiled down to two things. One, they aren't mandatory, and, every, and all these people who act like they are mandatory don't really know what they're talking about. And two, I think the term itself, the way it's discussed, misleads people or obscures the issue of what you're actually talking about. Sherlock Holmes and all the stories about him that A. Conan Doyle wrote never had a single character arc. He doesn't change across any of the stories, in any of the stories, and he doesn't change across all the stories. Sherlock Holmes is the same at the beginning of the very first Sherlock Holmes story and at the end of the very first, at the end of the very last Sherlock Holmes story. He's just Sherlock Holmes. And you want to talk about immortal characters, characters that stick in popular culture. They hit an essence of who the character is, and they don't change from that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have characters change from the events of a story. I'm just saying that people who think that character arcs are, are necessary, are required, are people who say when they watch a movie, well, this character didn't have an arc, and therefore that's a meaningful crit critique of this movie. People who think it's always a meaningful critique of a movie to say this character didn't have an arc, they're all nuts because that's not true. In fact, some of the most popular characters of all time, most of them don't change. And some of them do change once and stay the same after that. Like Han Solo changed once and pretty much stayed the same after that for the next two movies. Yeah. Um, and so... I'm not saying character arcs are bad, and I'm not saying they're wrong in every case. I am arguing against the position that other that some people have taken that they're mandatory. And also, I think that people have lost the plot on what character arcs should be. Instead of thinking about character arcs and this term and all of this artificial stuff, throw all that away and just think, does the character change? as a result of this story. For example, they hate um, the, you know, Empire. And I'm not saying Star Wars, the Empire. They hate the, you know, Empire of the North because they think that the Empire of the North uh, killed their father. And they find out during the, store, during the story that actually their father was killed by their neighbor. And so they you know, stop hating the Empire of the North and they start hating their neighbor whom they've lived next to for a long time. Okay, all that is the character changing attitudes about something during the story based on the events in the story. It's natural, it's inherent to the story. You can call that a character arc or not, but that's all that it is. The character changing their attitude, their viewpoint, their feelings, whatever, because of things that happen to them or that they witness or that they do and see the consequences of 
during the story. Make it organic, make it inherent to the character, make it inherent to the events of the story. And don't worry about, I must put a character arc in because no such rule exists. That's well, it. Yeah, and, and it depends on what you're trying to do with your characters, right? I mean, some characters have an arc in, in the story and some people don't. I mean, you look at Aragorn in Lord of the Rings and how much does he really change from the beginning to the end? Not a whole lot. He basically is the king at the beginning, and at the end, he's just the king in his kingdom. Um, you could argue how much does Gandalf change, and on one level, he changes a tremendous amount because he was Gandalf the Grey, and then he's Gandalf the White, but how much does it really change his behavior? If you look at some other character arcs in, in classic fantasy, if you look at, say, Edmund in Chronicles of Narnia, his character changes quite a lot. Yes. Um, and it works for the story that it's doing, that, that, that it needs to. And, and yeah, I mean, you, you can have characters who do change in stories with characters who don't change, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. I was, um, it, it kind of reminds me, um, Guy Kay, who he helped Christopher Tolkien with the Silmarillion. He wrote the Font of Art Tapestry, and he writes a lot of really well-researched um, historical fantasy books as well, and, and he'll tell you that you can basically do anything you want. All these writing rules are, you know, what's the Pirates of the Caribbean things? They're more suggestions or guidelines than actual rules. If you want to break them, go ahead, but you need to do them well. And, and if you want to have a character who doesn't change, then that's great as long as, the, as, long as you do it well and the rest of the story supports that. Um. And especially like the hobbits, they don't, uh, Frodo and Sam, especially Sam, doesn't change. And that's kind of the point of the hobbit. He he is who he needs to be, and he doesn't change at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, he is tested. Um, and, and that's part of when people start talking character arcs and changing, That that's probably what part of it. If you're tested and you're failing, um, you need to change. If you have weaknesses and your weaknesses are going to prevent you from reaching your goal, then part of your story arc is how do you overcome those weaknesses? Um, Frodo was tested, and until the very end, when he got bailed out by Gollum, he he made it through. Yeah, and, and I don't know that you would even call Frodo's changes a character arc because all the changes he went through were not internal to him they were burdens that were added to him because of physical wounds that he sustained he didn't change as a person he got a knife stuck in him and he wore the ring for so long and he had you know like i think three major wounds in encounters with the dark that just uh burdened him for the rest of his life i don't even know that that's a character arc, but they certainly colored how he acted. Right. And, and, and that sort of has to do with the sort of hardship and conflict that he has to face and overcome. Um, you're more likely to see what you're thinking of as, as a internal character arc where the person changes and becomes somebody who they aren't 
if they're facing internal conflicts, you know, if they're facing hate or or something that is misplaced, you know, you mentioned the the empire of the north that they hate so much, um, and if that's misplaced, then they need to somehow change and overcome the hate or find forgiveness or whatever it is that they want to do. And those internal things tend to lead towards more character changes. If you're if you're facing external changes, then your internal struggles are are less. Um, and maybe the character doesn't need to change as much to find the forgiveness that they need at the beginning of the story. So is that when he talks about me having ran about character arcs, that's all it is. It's just like approach it from a more organic standpoint instead of, I don't know, it just feels like this thing that they feel like they have to, uh, like this structure they feel like they have to shove into the story and it's like no just just look at the story you're telling and tell it and if the person changes because of it that's great um you know there's a maybe the person went through a character arc a while ago and that's what causes the conflict in the story maybe they had an event that changed them before the story and that's where the conflict of this story is coming from where you know um, but there's a character I have that used to be um, part of a, a street life uh, rap or gangster world, and he turned his back on that. But now there's tension between him and the people he used to know and his friends uh, who used to be friends. Uh, but now they're kind of resenting him for living a different way that's where the tension in the story comes. So it isn't that he changes so much during the story. It's that the conflict in that story comes from a change he made before the story begins. Sure. And you see a lot of stories. I mean, um, former spy stories, you know, the spies retired or the mafia story where they, they try to get out, but they keep pulling them back in sort of thing. Um, that they've tried to to change and become a better person, um, not in terms of of books, but I'm thinking of The Unforgiven, the movie with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, um, that's you know a, a good example of of what you're talking about. Is he's he's changed before the story started, and the tension comes between has he changed and and hasn't he changed? So it, it I just, I, the way I see people talking about these things online, and it's not just character arcs, it's, it's, it's everything. Every single thing you could use to analyze a story. I see people talking about them in this removed, remote, arcane, artificial way. Instead of getting down into the heart of the character and getting down into the heart of the story, they just talk about them like it's this structure. I'm like, tell a good story, you know, have motives for your characters, do what you need to do, and leave the artificial dissection to critics uh, or literary, you know, yeah, literature teachers. Story um, is everything. Yeah. Story is everything. And it, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, and, and part of it comes from, um, because I, I, I do writing for more than just Kursova, things like that. Um, and different people have different things that they want. And there's a tension between do you write what you want to write or do you try and write for a specific market? 
Um, and I come down firmly on the write what you want to write. And if you write something that's good enough, you will find a market for it. Um, and if you write something that's really good enough, you will make a market for it. Um, but you get into all these sorts of discussions of people who want this or don't want that, or we've seen this trope done to death. And, and I have sat in on discussions where, you know, editors of well-respected fantasy magazines um, say, never, ever, ever start a story in a tavern. It's been done to death. We, we, if, I, if I see that, I just won't do it. And I'm kind of sitting in the back thinking, I've sold two stories starting in taverns. Um, I'm not claiming that they are so good that they make their own market, but it serves a purpose. And you know, taverns in a medieval setting are natural meeting places. And for Battlefield of Karis, where you have two characters who have not met, you need to find a way for them to meet in a way that feels, as you say, natural. And a tavern is a way to do that. And so I started the story in a tavern. And then once they had met up and decided what they were going to do, excuse me, I moved beyond that. Um, but to listen to that conversation, it just feels like what you're talking about is you cannot do this. And, and I come back to Guy K's assertion, you can do anything you want. You are the writer. If you do it badly, it's not going to go anywhere. If you do it well, great. People are going to be entertained. Um, for the guys in the audience, if you're interested in looking up uh, his books, um, a lot of times I've seen them on the shelves under Guy Gavriel K. Yes. So you might try searching for those too. Yeah. And, and he, I mean, since we brought him up, he does a fantastic job of researching exotic real world settings, um, the Byzantine Empire. And I'm, I'm a Byzantine freak. I love the Byzantines. I think they've been sort of shafted by historians. Um, history ends when Rome fell, and, and that's not at all true. Rome just traipsed over to Constantinople and continued for another thousand years. Um, but Kay has stuff that are set in that period. He has stuff that is set in the far Nordic North. He has set that's, uh, stuff that is set in um, medieval China. And he's just done a fantastic job of creating those settings for his stories. I'm going to make sure chat sees that guy, Gabriel K, because that was tough to find with the search engine. <laughs> K-A-Y. Yeah. You want to pull that up on Amazon or something and pop it on the screen, they can... Oh, yeah, there it is, right in chat. Right there in chat. That way people checking it out afterwards can yep. see that K-A-Y. Once you've read something of his, you feel like you've read something. It, it's not super light, you know, kind of young adult stuff. Um. It, it, it's well-researched, it's well-written, the characters are believable, it's complicated. It's probably not the stuff that you just knock off a couple pages before bed, but it's definitely worth reading. Um, so I, I don't want to, I didn't want to take up all that much time with it, but yeah. <laughs> Do what's best for the story, and... They're... they're that reminds me of something, and and I don't mean to go into not fun territory, but <laughs> how much how much of of this reaction that you guys have and and response is to the sort of how do I put it the online community of posers who talk about how they want to write or or be a writer or what's that hashtag on Twitter M writing uh, that sort of thing. How much of that is 
is just responding to posers that are better left trolling Twitter or Facebook. Um, so I, I am part of a, a couple of different writing communities. So there's helping people write is actually a really big business. And if you say, I want to learn how to write, you will get more help than you probably want. And some of it's really good help and some of it's not really good help. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a place called Odyssey Writing Workshop. Um, it's a six-week writing intensive course uh, in New Hampshire. They do a fantastic job. If somebody is an aspiring writer and they want to look into it, that's another thing I would I would recommend. And they also do a great job of keeping people connected. So there are some fairly big names that have gone to this. People like Carrie Bond, um, the writer, or um, the editor of Beneath Ceaseless Skies is also an Odyssey alum. And there is a lot of discussion above the, I'm just writing for fun and it will never make it past my own screen about what you should and should not be doing, whether you whether you should be following the rules, whether you should be breaking the rules. Yes, that's, that's Odyssey. Um, if you break the rules, what you need to do to allow yourself to break the rules, um, what's been done to death. I mean, people talk about never do dragon stories because they've been done to death, but people are still reading dragon stories. So if you want to do a dragon story, you need to make sure your dragon story is a really good dragon story because we're all sick of reading bad dragon stories. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of a big tent guy. If you want to write a story that does this that's never been done before, great, write it. If you can find an audience for it, that's awesome. Um, maybe I'll like it, maybe I won't. It doesn't really matter. Um, as long as other people get the opportunity to write what they want, to read what they want, and to, things will shake out according to quality. Sometimes a new, a new idea will get traction and it might not be good, but somebody else will pick it up and they'll do it really well. Um, sometimes a new idea will be really good and then people will pick it up and beat it until it's dead. Fair. Um, let's see. I did have one other question. Oh, we're, I see we're getting short on time, so I'll get to the I'll get to the business stuff. Would you like me to answer that question though, real quick? Go ahead. Um, I think that, especially with, and I don't know why this is, and maybe it's just more prevalent in. Uh, in writing them with other places. I think that critics, literary critics, uh, self-important critics are the first posers. They're the original posers. They're the posiest of the posers. Um, in that they've come up with all of these academic ideas and all of these artificial constraints and all of these tools to analyze literature that a great many people have taken as guidelines to help you write. And I am, my thesis is that using the tools, well, using the tools that critics use to dissect a work, to try and write a work, I think very often is the absolute wrong thing to do. I think it's the wrong mental state to be in. I think it's the wrong processes to adapt. And so 
when you're going to write, when you're being a writer, you want to turn your back on the methods and processes of the critic and write as best as you can. And then after that, let an editor analyze your work and tell you what you need to adjust and go back and write that and rewrite and revise. Um, critics can be good people. Critics can be bad people. But very rarely are there are the people whose advice you should follow when writing a story or a book or creating a movie or whatever. And I think that far too much of the work of critics has been taken as writing advice and promulgated as writing advice. Yeah. If I can extend that a little bit, because I, I agree with that. The the things that when you go into a creative writing course and they talk about, you know, alliteration and all the other grammar tools and the literary tools, those are tools. And, and, and tools are meant to serve one thing, and that's the story. If you can't write a good story, it doesn't matter how good alliteration you have. The story still sucks. Um, so what you want to be able to do is write a good story, and then you can start talking about using all these tools that the, the critics will, will focus in on. And, and those are easy ways to critique a story is look for those signposts. And if they're not there, it's easy to say they're not, not good stories. But the, the underlying question is, is, is it a good story? And, and that's what you need to master first, I think. And it does come back. I mean, you get this tension between literary and genre fiction and the genre people get a little defensive because literary people are like, your stuff sucks because it's all about science fiction and ray guns and that's not a real thing. And, and sometimes there's truth to that because fantasy people make it all about the, the magic and, and magic is interesting, but the story is really about people. And if you don't have a good story about people, then the magic is just sort of this interesting sidelight there. But at the same time, if you're looking at literary stories, I'm always like, well, let's talk about a picture of Dorian Gray. If that's not genre fiction, if that's not speculative fiction, then I don't know what is. And yet Oscar Wilde is considered one of the greatest literary writers of all time. And, and isn't this a little bit of a double standard? So maybe we shouldn't be looking at the question of whether it's literary, whether it has all these great literary cachets about it, and whether it's spec, we should be talking about whether it's a good story, whether it speaks to you, whether it entertains you, whether it enlightens you, whether it changes you in some small way. Well said. So, you mentioned, uh, it, and I've got the I've got the link to the Kickstarter in the notes, and you've already got at least one more backer since we started the show. Thanks a lot, awesome. rain, raindrops. Um, and I, I I hope for great success for that. But you said that you also you write other stuff besides these stories for Kosova. So so where would someone find all of your great fiction? Um, well, it's, it's kind of you to typify it as great fiction. I'm not sure that I would do that. Um, legal disclaimer, I am more than a little bit of an introvert. Um, I like writing way, way more than I like submitting and publishing. Mm. Um, so I have been a couple stories in a now defunct magazine called Plasma Frequency. There's kind of this weird Western. It, it combines... Um, American West with magic and vampires and things like that. It was kind of fun. Um, and another one called God's Huntsman where um, angels are eating human souls and 
and one of God's angels has to hunt down who's who's eating these souls within heaven. Um, I have something in uh, New Myths. Uh, you could probably find it there in their archives. There is a podcast I wrote um, something. It was a, I took a song. It's one of the child ballads um, called The Cruel Sister. And it, it's it's just an old song. Um, and I turned it into a story and uh, sold it to a place called Cast of Wonders. And it was narrated by a woman named Tina Connolly. And she has her own books, if you're interested in tracking down her own books. Um, but that is available, I think, through their archives, and it has also been archived. It's titled The Cruel Sister. If you were to Google Cruel Sister in Brifegal, you could find a, a, a copy of it and listen to it fairly easily. Um, I'm missing something, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. That's that's all over the place. You should You should consider cataloging all those things just on a really simple website so that <laughs> you could just like a like a business card be like hey check out this site you can find all these cool archives here I, I should my my wife tells me i need to do something like that she was suggesting that i start a facebook page just for mongoose and maricat and, and and like i said i'm i'm not really the sort of person who gets into that sort of thing so i drag my feet and, and i've told her that if she wants to do all that stuff for me she's welcome to do it but she is a very busy person and it hasn't happened yet <laughs> Oh, I, I well then. I wish you luck getting that put together. I think um, we talk. I, I don't. Know, uh, you don't listen to the to uh, the Geek Gab, do you? I haven't regularly, but maybe that'll change. Well, <laughs> uh, I I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. What what I was getting at is that we talk a lot of shop with the indie authors that come on on the show, and most of them, if not all of them, stress the importance of being your own marketing, being your own, um, which for some people such as yourself, you're just like, and I just want to write, man. I ain't no one got time for that. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, if you hang out with writers, you'll find out that there's a couple kind of writers. There's the ones that if you ask them what they're doing, they will talk about, you know, their, their Twitter account, their Facebook page, their podcasts, you know, all the things that they're doing to promote their work. And, and then there are the ones that you got to be really careful because if you ask them what they're writing, you're going to learn way more about their latest project than you really want to know. And that one's me. I really enjoy the writing process. I, I like coming up with the stories. I like trying to figure out how things will work together so that I can get the information that the reader needs in a, in a smooth fashion so that they may not even know they're getting the information. Um, solving problems, uh, you write yourself into a corner and you know one of the Mongoose and Maricat stories, it took me three weeks to write my way out of the corner I'd gotten myself into. Um, Oh, wow. That's the sort of writer I am. I, I just, I don't enjoy the actual nuts and bolts of the business. I enjoy the, the creative end of it. Naturally. Naturally. Well, that's fair. I think we're close to out of time. So, uh, Daddy Warpig, did you have any other questions or, or anything for Jim? No, I, I think I've taken up enough time. <laughs> <laughs> uh Oh, all right. Uh, and last words from you, Jim. Anything besides checking out the the Kickstarter? Um, what what else do you want to say before we go? Um, well, yeah. Just uh, if you are interested, if any of this stuff sounds cool and interesting, absolutely check out the Kickstarter. There's 
plenty of copies to go around. There's still some availability for um, getting a hold of some dark of Dark Philly's art, which is really cool and would look great on anybody's wall. Um, also, considering the circumstances that we're in, you know, stay safe, clean, and don't catch the virus. Amen. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. I, Thank you for having me. I, and uh, I appreciate everybody listening live, hanging out in the chat on YouTube, and uh, everybody listening to the podcast later. Thanks for joining us, uh, hanging out with author Jim Brayfogle. Uh, appreciate you coming on. And as always, it's fun chatting with you, Daddy Warpig. Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for everybody who came on uh, live and participated in the chat. Thanks for everyone who's going to listen to the show later. This is Geek Gab. You can catch us on YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. That's YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. We are also available on the Google Play Store. We're available on SoundCloud.com, and we're available on the Apple iTunes Store. Just do a search for Geek Gab and you can uh, subscribe to us and listen on the device of your choice. We, uh, we love all our listeners, our unusually intelligent and attractive listeners, the millions of screaming fans of Geek Gab. But we have to say, not to break your hearts, we are signing out for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret, we will be back.